0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we are coming to you live from WNYC. This is a dream come true in a year that's just full of dreams come true for me. My guest tonight, the Emmy and Peabody-winning Young Turks of Tour, the hit shop behind Cocaine Cowboys, the highest rated ESPN 30 for 30s, The U. You've seen ESPN's The U, The U Part two Broke. You've seen them on Bourdain, at Sundance, Tribeca. They wrote the intro to my book, Hotel Scarface. And they're not even 20, uh, but they talk like they're 60. Please welcome Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for uh, having us. First, I got to pay the bills for the skills. Uh, Tonight's special episode made possible by Health Warrior, makers of the Chia Bar, the 100-calorie snack made with real ingredients and only 4 to 5 grams of sugar. I start every morning with a mango or apple cinnamon Chia Bar. You should also try their assortment of pumpkin seed bars and the peanut butter cacao protein bar. Mm -mm. Visit healthwarrior.com for great discounts. And by Elwood Thompson's, my favorite hometown market at the top of Carytown in Richmond, Virginia, if you're ever in Richmond. Tonight's show benefits the Lulu and Leo Fund, founded by Marina and Kevin Krim in honor of the children they lost to violence. Their Choose Creativity curriculum helps children and families foster creative confidence and build resilience. And let us not forget our gracious host tonight, WNYC. Please, a round of applause for everyone here. It was such a great... Such a great part of my job in my years at Business Week, at Smart Money that summer at the Times, getting to do WNYC with Brian Lehrer and Amy Eddings. I'd have base camp across the street at this Dunkin' Donuts, and just, it'd be so exciting. You'd go on with Brian Lehrer, and it's like you'd have tri-county conversations with people. And, you know, somebody would call up. It's like, Fazad, is that name Arab? Are you an Arab? Are you with the Antifada? I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just a financial journalist. So thank you, WNYC and the green space. I love this place. Love this building, and it's really... Uh, generous of you to lose money on me. So. But having said that, Billy and Alfred, we're talking about media disruption uh, today. You guys, I profiled you for Business Week. Was it 10 years ago? That's right. And what should have been the tell Alfred when I got in touch with you, because we went to junior high together, I was like, I hear you're doing a documentary. Is it like City Made of Snow or something? I'm with Business Week. I think we had a locker next to each other at Highland Oaks Middle. Um, I'd like to profile you for Business Week. And what you said reflexively is, oh, great, my dad reads Business Week. <laughs> and uh, two years later, Business Week was no longer. Um, a lot
1: of the. Prof- his, his dad, who, who also said at the time, as I recall, when you did a profile on our company, Rack and Tour, in 2009, he said, the first time in history that Business Week uh, is profiling renters.
0: that's That's a a real good point but you were really apocalyptic about the state of legacy media you were talking about if by apocalyptic you mean accurate accurate yes toot your horn man as much as you have to you were telling us that look i you know you were uh avowedly uh you know shoestring budgeted you credited your late dog in the credits for cocaine cowboys which is now just so iconic it's been Dropped in songs. It's been mentioned everywhere. It's on youtube. you You let it leak gloriously everywhere. People in Nigeria talk about it. Um, what you what you predicted largely turned out to be true. I mean, these enormous conglomerates that just had overhead and overhead and hit based, Motion picture budgets are are crashing and burning right now.
1: And I remember we were shooting a film, uh, literally a film, on film, on Super 16 in the summer of 97. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were working with a a young director of photography who was uh, our age at that time and who was a devout student of film and a lover of celluloid. I mean, literal film, Kodak Vision, Super 16 stock. And Alfred and Armando uh, Salas, our DP, got into this argument. And Alfred said, in 10 years, there will be no film. And he was like, "That's nonsense." Of course, there's always going to be film. We'll be right. And literally, I think it was almost ten years to the day. Didn't they close like all the labs closed down? Like literally on this on that day. Ten years later, it was it was insane. I I, I don't know that 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 is.
2: Uh, well, that as, is. and and we also we were both born in '78, so we graduated high school in '96. And so when we graduated high school, I mean, you know, everybody had cable television. You would go to buy CDs at the at the, at the mall from some specs, right? Or Peaches. Uh, you know, you'd go to the movies on the weekend. It was only a year later that the you know Titanic came out, become the highest grossing film of all time. And when we had our first professional break at Sundance in two thousand one, with our first documentary, Raw Deal. Um, you know, the audience that we cared about was eight acquisition executives from the major independent film distributors because they were the gatekeepers. If you couldn't get one of them to buy your film, you weren't going to be in theaters. You weren't going to be in Blockbuster Video. Remember Blockbuster? Uh, you know, you weren't going to be able to get your film distributed. And so, you know, for the first, we've gone through kind of four incarnations of our career at this point now, having been doing this for 17 years. We started at Sundance. Selling films to to distributors, uh, then we caught the DVD boom. The end of the DVD boom with Cocaine Cowboys. The DVD came out in January of 2007, and sold tonnage for a, for a documentary, um, and that we really made a mark with that. And then with the Great Recession, the DVD boom collapsed. So then we started doing TV commissions, which luckily right then the ESPN 30 for 30 series had just begun, and uh, during the Great Recession that 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 program became essentially the full employment, the tarp, for independent filmmakers because they put 30 filmmakers to work in the middle of 2008, 2009. And now we've gone from TV commissions to see cord cutting impact the business to now we're all funneling into a streaming video world.
1: Well, our parents uh, treated cable television-like utility. You, know, you paid your water bill, your power bill, your cable bill. That's just the way that it was. But anybody who paid a modicum of attention to the business model had to know that it was completely untenable. It didn't make any sense. It's like going to the grocery store every month, you know, go, uh, giving them $200. They put whatever they want into your basket maybe you get a few premium items you could pay extra for the HBO Oreos or the Showtime Hawaiian bread or whatever and then you go home with this basket and you throw out 90 plus percent of it cuz those are the ch- channels you never watch but that you're still paying for it never made any sense like you wouldn't do that with 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 anything else I you know you you'd want a la carte obviously and so the business model never made uh, never made much sense and now it it's catching on but to But here's where-
0: the deal. You're still in this date uh, in this day and age of cord cutting, twenty seventeen, you are still beholden to the Time Warner cables and charters and cable visions and uh, they don't even call it Comcast anymore. They call it you know Xfinity. It's Defi- like a bad define word. beholden though. You have to, We're more you beholden have to, buy, to Netflix. You have than- to buy a fat pipe from them. You need a Wi Fi connection. Right. And yeah. with net neutrality, I mean we don't wanna get into you know, Wonkville here or Technistan. But if they have their thumb on that pipe, if they can throttle you when you're watching, when you're binging something on Netflix, you're not exactly a free
2: agent out there, able to co- cut cords and, and go anywhere on the internet that you'd like. That's correct. And, and, and that is going to be the next challenge as we go into the 2020s. But, you know, certainly from a world <clears throat> where we grew up in, where it was NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox, I think from our perspective, we're going into a world where it's Netflix and Amazon, Hulu, and Apple. Let me ask you this.
0: Who, aside from the handful of friends who I begged here tonight, is actually paying for content? I, I mooch off my brother's uh, Spotify subscription. He has a Netflix subscription that he, you know, he shares a password with for me. Like, where do you see examples where people are actually going? A la Most carte of them didn't even pay content? to be here tonight. Yeah. I know, <laughs> <it's just> <laughs> like, <laughs> Content, content is free. Amazon Prime is throwing it in for free. I mean, they're bundling this stuff. Well, I don't it's know not, of, It's not I for mean, free. You're still, you're paying for the Prime But really, you know it's what, included. that's a sprig of parsley on the plate of the Amazon Prime. I'm buying Amazon Prime for the shipping advantage.
2: That's correct. And, and as and as somebody in the content business, that is the biggest concern, I think, about Amazon, because at least with Netflix, you're paying for content. You value it. It's $10 a month, $9, whatever your, your subscription is. With Amazon throwing in your, your Prime uh, video, uh, the consumer doesn't ever feel it, doesn't know what they're paying for uh you know doesn't know that they're paying for this content and so i think that's going to be a question that amazon will eventually resolve whether they break off prime into its own you know subscription video on demand offering or not you
1: always hear far more about the netflix original series they seem to get a lot more attention we don't know the ratings you know that's the thing it's a fuzzy
0: it's a fuzzy metric if i'm binging narcos Does that really demonstrably, like from a cost accounting perspective, mean that, oh, you'd know, you have to pry away that $10 subscription a month from my cold, dead hands? No, I I don't know what my willingness to pay would be if they took it away from me. Like when I hit the Times, New York Times paywall, what I'm asking you about right now is kind of login fatigue. When you talk about this long tail environment, and we're all free agents, and cord cutting is happening, and whether it's The New Yorker, The Washington Post, or HBO Go, HBO Direct, or Netflix bundled with your T-Mobile account. How many logins do you have to have? How many places want to ask you to pay it a la carte
2: versus a Time Warner Cable, which would stick you with a hundred and twenty-dollar bill? Well, that's that. We're going to find that out pretty soon because I mean, essentially now, if you look at at millennials who have never had cable television, who have a Netflix subscription, they probably you know maybe have an HBO Go subscription or use their parents you know login or whatever. Uh, DirecTV Now is now uh, going, uh, you know, is over the top, you know, with a skinny bundle of 30, 35 channels. How many of those will that end up equaling what you ended up spending on cable at some point? And the answer to that could very well be yes.
1: Point being, if if we knew the answer to that, we wouldn't be here on terrestrial radio with you.
0: (laughs) But no, in defense, this is not terrestrial radio. I know, it's a podcast. (laughs) People People come to me through NPR One, and there is terrestrial radio upstairs. I mean, Brian Lehrer does a great job they are the a lot of these stations in my world are pledge drive dependent mm-hmm. and they're hitting up 50 and 60 somethings for money every month where Millennials just are not listening to them. I know millennials who I do talk to who are passionate about something like a This American Life or an All Things Considered want to have a relationship with that show, want to earmark the dollars directly to that mm-hmm. show. They don't want to go through kind of this feudalism of, uh, right. of a member station.
2: Well, I, like I said, I think that, that's where we're heading. And, and the great experiment now is going to be able to figure out you know, which of those businesses are going to succeed. We've seen you know, in the news the past week, there's this digital news collapse that's, been, uh, you know, that, that's being talked about extensively. BuzzFeed, I think Vice missed their earnings uh, 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 Mashable, Mashable, which would have gone for, what, 300 million a few years ago is now apparently down to 50 million in terms of looking for an exit strategy. So, uh, you know, there's going to be some consolidation. Uh, You know, I think one of the, the, the most interesting stats that I've heard is that as a result of the political climate that we're in, You are seeing more and more subscriptions to the New York Times, the Washington Post. You're seeing an explosion of revenue, uh, of digital subscription revenue to hard news sources, which is interesting because when you see the younger demographic, uh, the millennial demographic, spending that money, you know, we've gone 17 years now since Napster, you know, and, and the idea that that generation will now Pay for content where they've raised, they've been raised on the idea that content and not just similar free.
1: to the public radio model. There, you know, they might not be getting a tote bag, but uh, you know, or a mint tin. But I think that they they see it as an act of uh, benevolence, of you know, of, of patronage. They're supporting uh, this kind of journalism that they want to see more of.
0: Billy Alfred, talk to me about music. Um, you you also were were. Uh quite profit-like in predicting that I would not own music, that these subscription services would really. I think Pandora was in its infancy. Yahoo had a subscription service. I never imagined that on my rinky-dinky Verizon or Sprint data plan that I would be streaming with a luxurious Bluetooth connection in the car from Spotify, not thinking about the data plan, not owning music anymore, not thinking like this new album came out by Arcade Fire and I need to buy it. It's just there now. Um, There's got to, there have to be people. I mean, you've seen the Taylor Swift news and her impasse with Spotify. I mean, Def Leppard won't release their albums, their pure albums on Spotify, much to my consternation. (laughs) Um, No, seriously, the fact that I have to have Def Leppard (laughs) separately on my iPhone. (laughs) Why aren't more artists ticked off about it? They're not getting paid. I think you know, the song Happy was streamed, what, two billion times, and he says he got $2,000 for it?
2: Yeah, I'll never forget when I first got Napster, uh, when I first got my first fast DSL line. It was September of 99. And, you know, I was one of the first, I, as a kid, I had Prodigy in America Online <laughs> with the 56K dial-up. And when that switch went on and I heard about Napster, I, I, was, I would stay up all night for days downloading mp3s and, down- and because I knew at some point this was gonna have to turn on <laughs> this is obviously illegal there's gonna be something that's not you know that's not kosher about this and built a huge music library of mp3s um, you know Steve Jobs basically had the had the record labels uh, you know at, at his mercy and uh, you know ended up dragging them all into the 99 cents track world because they were they, they couldn't monetize music anymore and as that changed Billy and I saw we said well if this is happening with music this will happen with film eventually. As soon as more people get larger pipes, because the only difference between music, MP3s, and film at that point was the file size.
1: And music was always free. You turn on terrestrial radio, and and you get ad-supported uh, music. Uh, and and um, you know, n- people, I guess, were still buying albums at that point. But why? It was said, talk about a, a an untenable business model. You'd go out and and uh, you'd go to the Virgin Megastore for crying out loud, and pay eighteen ninety nine. For a CD that had maybe one or two songs that you wanted, and then 11, 12, 15 tracks of, of filler. I remember this story, uh, I'll never forget it, I think I saw it on CNN like back in the 90s, in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, um, and it was a, about a company that was uh, beta testing a product, it was a vending machine essentially, uh, in music stores, where you could go in and get this, you could use a computer, Uh, to search for songs, for singles, and you could create your own playlist and then burn a CD in store at a dollar a song. So a 15-track CD would be approximately $15, which which was fair market value at the time, or competitive. But you could pick the 15 songs you wanted instead of buying these these albums uh, that they were trying to sell us. Uh, And I never saw them. This was the prototype, and it it seemed like a no-brainer, and it never said. And it turned out the labels didn't want you to be able to pay $0.99. For a single. How did they, they, they ever you, acquiesce? They wanted you to buy a whole How album. How did they
0: ever acquiesce to Pandora and Spotify then? I don't They get had no that.
2: choice. Well, at some point, at some point, the business was in such dire straits. Again, they acquiesced to Steve Jobs, who dictated a 99-cent track price, which, with the unbundling, just like unbundling of magazines or newspapers, as soon as you start reading an article and not buying the entire package, the economics don't make sense anymore. Look, I, you know, again, going back to when we graduated from high school, we came of age in an era when record labels were printing money, because A, you had to rebuy all of your vinyl collection onto CD and to press a CD, you press a CD for pennies. And by the time it's done, it's a dollar maybe. And they're you know wholesaling it for 16, 17 bucks to Best Buy. And Best Buy is going to charge you 17 bucks because they want you to come in and buy the washing machine. So it was a loss leader for all of these, for Walmart and Best Buy to carry. Same thing with the DVD business. The DVD boom was, the, 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 the dirty little secret of the of our business essentially is that from essentially 1997, when the DVD kind of was was widely adopted, for about 10 years, that the movie business was essentially a packaged goods business. Yeah. They were essentially just selling you plastic discs. Everybody thinks it's so sexy. That was it. It was just plastic. It was a plastic yes. disc, a disc that could be manufactured for a dollar, wholesaled for 16, 17 dollars, and then uh, and then retailed uh, for 17, 18, 19 bucks at, uh, at Best Buy. Full disclosure, I'm Robin
0: Farzad. We are live at WNYC with my favorite Hollywood enfant terrible blah How do you even pronounce that? Hollywood <laughs> Florida,
1: maybe. <laughs> Hollywood Florida. Big
0: time in Hollywood Florida. Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman of Raconteur. You know they're from Cocaine Cowboys, The U. Uh, Cocaine Cowboys, Los Muchachos is in the offing. We'll be talking about that. Um, I would like to ask you, in that you've dealt with film studios, why are they so stodgy in, now that we have over-the-top systems with Roku and with Apple TV and letting us just buy a film that's released. I mean, in, not these not these stupid things that they do that like you have to show up at the movie theater and watch it on opening weekend or you have to pay $30 to watch it. I mean, why isn't there rational pricing, both at the box office, if it still exists,
2: and over the, the top? The movie studios have fought every technological innovation for decades. They fought television. They fought VCRs. uh, The original time shift, uh, you know, time shifting technology. Uh, The studios are just not equipped to 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 be nimble enough uh, to move quickly. And again, the DVD boom was was raining cash on the studios. And you know, the idea that you know, in 2003, 2004, they're three years into Napster at this point. The studios were still making a ton of money. In DVDs, and so they didn't. They never shifted their their model. I don't get it. Still, I mean, the writing is all over the wall. I mean, this is a yeah. At this point, this point is
1: it's a... the it's the dinosaurs cursing the meteor as it hurtles towards the earth. Okay, really, but they still
0: they still yeah. subsidize. I mean, disastrous movies. You still see one hit for every five or six bombs. How is that still happening?
1: But enough about the DC universe. <laughs> I'm sorry. Could those movies get any
0: crappier? I'm sorry. I mean, it's just, it's just the reality.
2: Well, the, the Murdoch's one out of the business now, right? They're talking about selling off the Fox. I mean, Time, uh, the Warner Fox the te-
0: Time Warner sold. Time Warner, you forget the big conglomerate that made the mistake of trying to shack up with AOL to turn of the century is selling to what it would deride as a fat pipes provider, these guys in Texas, which certainly, I mean, I don't know how you get your heads around that. I mean, if, if people are going to increasingly bundle the fun content with a wireless plan, if that's what AT&T's goal is here, to kind of, to tack
2: that onto your bundle. Which business, which, which one of these mergers has ever succeeded, these, whether it was AOL, Time Warner? Which one of these has ever worked where you bundle together the content company with the technology or the distribution platform? It, it hasn't worked. Uh, you know, I guess maybe Netflix would probably be the the, the best example of, of of somebody who kind of figured it out. But we don't really know because but they're not in, they're not selling the pipes.
1: They're not selling that's true.
2: That. But but the te- but building the streaming technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, they went overnight from essentially a mail order company to a technology company, uh, and added on to that a layer of content creation. And you know, how successful has the content creation part of it been? Well, we don't really know because Netflix doesn't release ratings or viewership. Uh, not even to agents, talent, you know, nobody knows how how your particular show or, or movie performs on Netflix. Um, so, you know, I, I guess they seem to be successful. They're certainly taking on a lot of debt to uh, to continue funding the content initiative. And I guess we'll see if that ends up becoming, a, you know, a, a, a profitable business going forward.
0: On Wall Street increasingly, they talk about these huge content uh, players right now as the fangs, uh, you know, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google. Mm-hmm. In many other circles, they break it out as the four horsemen of tech. We've certainly seen that again at the turn of the century. But what is your impression of Facebook? How do, I mean, this is streaming on Facebook Live. I don't pay Facebook anything. I mean, occasionally I'll run a, a, an ad promotion. It doesn't move the needle for me. Should you say hi to everybody in Russia? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> are people watching it then? I know, but WNYC is also streaming it at the same time. There was that uh, not Periscope thing. I don't understand. I mean, is is has, has effectively all of advertising been sucked into Facebook and Google?
2: Oh, absolutely. And and you know, I think that's what we're seeing with the news about Buzzfeed and Vice, and certainly local newspapers. Uh, you know, if you expected to build your advertising business on the back of Facebook distribution, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who are questioning that now. Um, and there's going to be a lot of consolidation. Uh, uh, with a lot of these news, these digital news startups. They don't, if you're depending on digital ad revenue, I, it's hard to imagine a, a, a future in there.
1: But you see Facebook advertising, weary, weary effective.
0: <laughs> ADVERTISING. I mean, you saw the, I won't say the implosion, but the uh, falling on the sword of the biggest magazine company, publicly traded magazine company, Time Inc. today, which sold itself in a bit of a take under to Meredith. Um, you know, it it had been unceremoniously kind of kicked to the curb by the conglomerate Time Warner several years ago and really struggled to reinvent from print to digital. It kept coming out and saying we're digital natives now. We get video. When Mashable was hot, it was doing what Mashable was doing. When BuzzFeed was hot and sponsored content and native advertising, and that just didn't work. Yeah. And I read something today by Joe Nocera, who was f- for a long time at uh, Fortune magazine was one of my favorite bylines. There, he's like, if you, one of the problems with this industry. And by the way, I came to New York seventeen years ago, wanting to get a job at Fortune, wanting to get a job at Time. I think it was on the tail end of the drink cart, you know, like they had expense accounts and everything. There was the thud factor. Time magazine was so thick, and he said back then it was. There was this like this last hurrah for print advertising, and they hired all these people, and that made them even less capable to innovate, and they died sooner. That was after your
2: years spent at the at the peep shows in Times Square, where you, where you <laughs> were working. Good point. Yeah. Point taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, I, I think it's an it's a it's a real conundrum, and and I, I don't really know how these these you know these legacy businesses get out of it or get out from under it. You know, is the original sin. The, the, the failure to erect paywalls in the late 90s for, for newspapers? Uh, probably. Um, again, they train people not to pay for content. And so if you're relying on. Ed- Have you ever clicked on an ad? A banner ad?
1: No. And Has I was anybody here
2: ever that. clicked on a banner ad? Ever?
1: I've clicked on a banner ad. I don't think I've ever been converted necessarily to a buyer as after under, clicking on a banner ad. But I, don't I I've understand
2: the on business. I
0: love how these two guys end up going off on their own parenthetical side. They're like, they're like two
2: just, old men in Miami
0: Beach arguing just, on a park bench, and that's why. I Thanks, love Robin. That. We'll take it just from here. I'm wondering about this,
2: this
1: chair. for Elijah over here is what I'm is what I'm wondering about. That is
0: Elijah's chair. Elijah will step up shortly. Yeah, I, I guess. So then, I, I, again, I want to press you on this. Where is the reckoning where people are forced to pay for advertising? Does it, does it need a, I mean, is it because we've had such a venture capital and tech bubble and you're effectively getting subsidized content from Amazon and from venture capitalists throwing money at BuzzFeed and Vox and all these native startups?
2: You know, I, I hate to think that we're going to a world where, uh, you know, movies and entertainment content is, you know, is, is kind of, Championed like the opera or the ballet, where you have contributors and people who want to see it uh, see it survive. You have you know just super fans basically who will. Who will pay for it? It's very possible that that's, the, that's, that's where we're headed here. You saw Peak TV a few years ago, right? I think there was something about something like 400 original series on TV. This is the, the Sopranos Breaking Bad phenomenon that, that, you know, as soon as you had one of these real upscale premium types of, of shows that broke through on basic cable, every basic cable channel wanted to replicate it. This followed the reality television boom of the of the early zeros. It's gotten very expensive to produce, and there's more shows now than you could ever possibly consume on Netflix or anywhere else. I, I have a list of shows shows that I want to watch, uh, I'll, it'll take me till, you know, 30 years to get through all the shows that I want to watch. So, you know, is there There might be too much content, and we'll see a consolidation, and then it will, I, I think we're going to have to go back to a world where either the subscription video on demand, the SVODs, are basically dominating. Uh, like I said, it'll become a world where instead of NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, we're Netflix, Hulu, uh, Apple, and, uh, and Amazon. Is there any sort
0: of circumstance in which, like, you know, Cocaine Cowboys 6... You know, let's say out in the year twenty twenty six that I can have a direct relationship with you and you can dock my Apple pay and I can strictly get that a la carte from you. I mean, how much can, how much could we charge for that? and how many people? And could what would we make it worthwhile? That? I mean, the economics in that. and it's going back to to long tail kind of theory and the difficult in scaling with this. There's always been a subsidy, whether it's your USA today at twenty five cents, whether it's all the junk you have on cable in addition to the four channels you watch. and I just wonder, in that we're creatives, maybe creatives in, in our sunset, at least I am. I mean, I'm, I'm 41, I'm washed up. Um, you are the future. Um, we're 39. What motivates you? That's what <laughs> you just look a lot younger. What motivates, you? what motivates you to be in this? We're all doing it for the exposure, ultimately. Why are you doing this? My mom is like grieving the day that I became a journalist. Like I yeah, told but, you, but I'm it, not a but doctor. It could
1: have been so much worse. We could have gone to law school, and then what the hell would we <laughs> be doing? You know, that that, that was the alternative. Yeah. But, 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 there's a, but artists have always had benefactors, you know, and,
0: and, and we have this. The Medici's. I mean, who's this, who's your benefactor? You now? Had the, you, Mike Bloomberg bought my magazine. I mean, it's never going to move the needle for terminal sales. You know, I. You know, Amazon. Uh, well, Jeff Bezos what, is What's the he doing man with the Washington the Post? Well, Jeff Bezos, The Washington Post. I mean, he was asked, "Please take it out." It was almost like you know, like I wouldn't say euthanasia, but he did it out of pity, out of sadness. It's never. He's the ideal newspaper owner, by the way, because if he doesn't, if he's not judged on the core profitability of Amazon, same store sales, retail margins, blah blah blah. blah, Nobody's gonna look at this little two hundred and fifty million dollar bauble. And I believe he's now the richest man in the world. And he owns Audible. And he owns Amazon Web Services. And in that
2: conglomerate, it's a very comfortable place to be right now. Well, but look, I mean, the studios have stopped financing movies years ago, right? I mean, Warner Brothers has a huge deal with yeah. Every but every studio and has a deal with in, with yeah, with China financiers, Russia, yeah, India, wealthy financiers who finance most of the content, most of the movies that are that are released. The studios have essentially become kind of banking operations, essentially. So, you know, who is going to finance this? And who's gonna? I, like I said, we've been through four incarnations of our business in seventeen years, and the way we've managed to survive and and and, and thrive in the environment is just. To keep our overhead low, stay nimble. I, I was just telling somebody today: in 17 years, we've had our office on Lincoln Road, Miami Beach. We have great office, but we've never had a phone line. We use cell phones. So, you know, we in 17 years of operation, we've never had you like you an office. Do you drive Lyft
0: on the side? Are you amenable? <laughs> to Listen, that?
2: we've we've managed. We, we keep our overhead low and we stay nimble and we take advantage of opportunities as we see kind of the changing. Like I said, the changing model.
0: Speaking of Miami, to take a hard turn, what 1,100 miles south. That's where you and I cross paths, really, with this book. You were very kind to write the intro to *Hotel Scarface*, my book, and I was amazed. You you really pounced, as I've called you before in in a you know puffery in the Miami Herald or something, that uh, you are creative arbitrageurs. You pounced on something in 2006, 2007 that was unresolved from the early 80s. I mean, we had Miami Vice, we had Scarface, we had Birdcage, all these things that were filmed in South Florida you know, Brendan Tartikoff and 30 Rock and Burbank, and everybody had their takes on it, but you got to the nitty-gritty. I mean, I've never seen such a cross-section of people that said, wow, you have to see Hotel Scarface, or, or CNBC syndicates it. And I remember I was doing a profile of uh, farmers who were selling gas rights, uh, you know, to, to drilling companies uh, deep into Pennsylvania. And they're like, you're from Miami? Have you seen the Cocaine Cowboys? I mean. It's it's just it's just everywhere, and to look back at ten years, we'll, we'll, we'll be in in some city somewhere,
1: and and we'll get into an Uber or a Lyft, um, and uh, just they'll see like, oh, where are you, where are y'all from, and we'll be like Miami. Like, have you seen Cocaine Cowboys? And we'll just like, I'm like, no. And, and they'll just like, <laughs> we'll spend the car ride with them telling us, pitching Cocaine Cowboys uh, to, to us. Yeah. Yeah.
2: At the, at the time, it was really just, we had gotten back from Sundance. We'd made our first doc. We'd made a big, we were the youngest filmmakers ever invited to Sundance, the only ones ever from South Florida. And everybody says, Are you guys going to New York or LA? The agents were calling. We said, We want to go back to Miami, to our hometown. And tell stories from our hometown the way that you know Woody Allen or Spike Lee are associated with New York or Barry Levinson with Baltimore. There was nobody telling stories from Miami in in fiction and nonfiction. You had Edna Buchanan and Carl Hiassen. You had you know you had writers Dave Barry. You had writers doing it, but nobody was telling kind of the crazy stories of Miami. Seemed like an untapped resource. And you so know, remind
0: way. me of the whole air supply thing, like you made something out of nothing at all, like air supply said making love out of nothing at all. There was nothing that was, there. That was Jim Steinman, to be fair, who really Oh. Yeah. Song. You're so see, you have yeah. the knowledge of a 65 year-old. That's the beautiful scalability of Billy Corbin. Well, we, I mean, in this young package, you did Burger King ads too 25 years ago, right? McDonald's? McDonald's, McDonald's my yeah. gosh so scalable.
2: Anyway, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, at the time we had this theory which now as I as I say it today it doesn't make as much sense because of face because of Facebook, I'll get to it in a second, but nostalgia kind of runs in these 25 30 year cycles because You know, things that you remember from your teens and early 20s, by the time you're in your 40s, you have kids, and, you know, you look back on that era. So when we started thinking about making Cocaine Cowboys in 2003, 2004, it had been about 25, 20, 25 years, Um, Grand Theft Auto Vice City had come out and become the biggest video game of all time, best-selling video game of all time. Uh, Michael Mann was finally talking about doing the Miami Vice film, the long-awaited Miami Vice film. And, you know, it takes one episode of MTV's Cribs to know that Scarface had become this iconic cult classic.
0: Re-released like 30 times. Re-
2: and at the time, you, we had heard that Universal said that uh, Scarface on DVD outsold E.T. and Jurassic Park combined. And yet my book won't sell. Why? Why? <laughs> so we Make said, me a bestseller. We said, let's go, t- let's go do the real Scarface. And so that's what we set out to do, is kind of find these guys who had gone to prison, gotten out, uh, you know, after all this time, and might be willing to, to share their stories. And we set out, we, we were very kind of specific in our mission. We, we we didn't want to make documentaries. We've never wanted to make documentaries. We always look at documentaries, you know, there's sub-genres of documentaries, and we called Cocaine Cowboys a gangster movie. In fact, when we brought it to Tribeca, we got an offer from Mark Cuban's Magnolia Pictures, Tom Quinn, who we've done a bunch of films with since, came to us, and we said, look, if you merchandise this at Best Buy, in the special interest section, where DVDs are the documentaries, are usually sold next to Pilates videos and special interests. We're not going to sell anything, but if you merchandise this as a gangster movie we'll be able to sell some units. And so, sure enough, Best Buy put the DVD in the action section, right between Con Air and Casino Royale. And uh, and Best Buy was calling Magnolia. They put their first order in the first quarter. The second quarter, they increased their order. The third quarter, for something like six straight quarters, Best Buy increased their number of what orders. What kills me is
0: you were never bothered by the fact that this was appearing on cheap burns in the Carroll City... It uh, was the greatest market. thing that ever happened to you us. You were you were so happy that it was a. I wish we had thought markets. of it. I wish we had. I wish we had leaked it on. <laughs> and purpose. it was on YouTube. I mean, you could get it all on YouTube right now. You don't care if people download it. Did you ever make money on Cocaine Cowboys? What, what's your line, Bill, about a cult classic?
1: <laughs> oh yeah, Cocaine Cowboys is a is a cult classic, and the definition of a cult classic is everyone has seen it and it hasn't made any money. That's <laughs> that's Cocaine Cowboys. But, but listen, we, it, we, it 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 launched our careers essentially. The bootleg market did. You know, people don't. Bootleg crap that they don't like. They bootleg stuff that they want to cosign, that they want to own, that they want to recommend to other people. And so, you know, this was the mistake that that the recording industry made. They started suing their biggest fans, who were people who were uh, collecting, consuming, and sharing their product. They started targeting them for piracy. And we said, why are we going to go after our biggest fans, who are the people who were embracing our work and and sharing our work? And uh, it just seemed. It just seemed a misguided uh, effort. You know, it seemed like these, there was this whole community that was out there screaming from the rooftops that people should... It was viral before there was streaming video. It was viral in the, in the bootleg uh, market, and people in the local hip-hop community in Miami were sending it to friends all over the country, and it just it blew up, and, and who wouldn't want that? And, and then we had fans who were suddenly cooler than we were. You know, like Janet Jackson and Pharrell and and DJ Khaled and and all these and Pitbull and all these people who are like, oh, I love your movie, and they could like quote dialogue from it. And and Janet Jackson talked about how um, sh- uh, 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 her boyfriend at the time came showed up in the middle of the night, like five six o'clock in the morning, and said. You I you have to see this. And she thought nasty, someone nasty boy. Well, she thought someone was was sick or had died. She's like, is everything okay? <laughs> yes, you have to watch this. And and he hands her a DVDR with a little Sharpie written cocaine cowboys on it. And she said, I watched it twice. She put it in the DVD player around 6-7 a.m. and she watched. The movie twice, and 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 it was like, what are we gonna do? We're gonna sue Janet Jackson for you know boot, for buying a bootleg of our of our. What's movie? it like to
0: watch it on CNBC when it's kind of clean, you know, sanitized in the language? Well, I act. always
1: wondered what the what the first C stood for. Now we know it's cocaine. Uh, <laughs> in CNBC, because like for a while it was like on an endless on an on endless, an endless loop. loop. It was. It was bizarre, but what's interesting about, about the doc, when we first set out to make it, my grandfather, who uh, uh, made his bones in the real estate business post-war in South Florida, particularly Miami Beach, when we were talking to him about the project, which was originally titled City Made of Snow, as you mentioned earlier, um, the thesis statement of the doc was essentially that the cocaine boom uh, in in Miami in, in the 1980s um, helped, cre- helped build the city. And in fact, I, I often refer to it uh, as the only uh, real-world successful uh, case study of Reagan's trickle-down economics at work, I don't. It was the cocaine boom in Miami, um, and we have the uh, the narco dollars that that bled into or trickled down into infrastructure uh, to credit with the skyline of Miami. My grandfather said, "Absolute nonsense, total rubbish." That's a non-starter. It would have happened uh, anyway, or irregardless, as we say in Miami. Um, We we say that because we're illiterate. Um, When I say it, though, I'm being irironic. But uh, he said that's totally not true. And then Cocaine Cowboys came out, and it first embraced by the hip-hop community. Then it went, um, it opened in theaters for about 15 minutes. I think it closed during the third reel um, in, in movie theaters. Then it blew up on legit... DVD. And then it wound up on Showtime. And then it wound up on CNBC. And it seemed everywhere that it went, it was a new demographic. It was a new audience. And by the time it was on CNBC, it was just sort of accepted that our premise was correct. And Grandpa never argued with me about it. So CNBC again. and
0: Business Week validated and Really legit. Legitimized Absolutely. the whole operation. Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, that's great to hear. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, talking with the Young Turks of Racontour Billy Corbin, Alfred Spellman, all over the place. I do want to call up Owen Band. He is a character, a central character in this book. Um, Owen Bar-Mitzvah Band, if you please take a seat with us. Um, Elijah. Elijah, this, was, <laughs> this seat was saved for you. <clears throat> Owen and I went to the same high school, North Miami Beach High School. He was a wrestling uh, champ there. Went to BU on scholarship. Graduated salutatorian. Had his heart set on getting into Harvard Law. Uh, but things didn't go as planned. He was waitlisted, and he ended up at the mutiny and amid the very cocaine cowboys that you spoke about. And he summoned me to Barney Greengrass when I was researching this book, and he had mentioned what you guys had reported. And I always dreamt of kind of getting you guys on stage together And his, his bar mitzvah suit still fits, which clearly,
1: clearly we didn't get the memo. We thought this was radio. I didn't know that it was, it was, it was TV yeah, but we should know that with your your precious uh, uh, Persian punum that this was uh, you're clearly the Persian eye candy punim. the eye candy of this operation.
3: You mean this isn't TV?
0: <laughs> no, it is. It, we did, it is being streamed on TV, TV too. You're so
1: you're 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 so well dressed and and we're such schleppers.
0: Oh, and I wanted to ask you actually <clears throat> your reactions in still seeing the primary kingpin from '80s Miami, Willie Falcone, who's going to be the one of the big subjects of Los Muchachos, the next installment of Cocaine Cowboys, he is still in the news. If we take the inception of this saga as the late 70s, these Cuban immigrants are planning their takeover of the cocaine trade. They're speedboating champions. They're everywhere. In 2017, to still be dominating criminal justice news down in Miami, this story doesn't end.
3: No. You know, uh, there's a lot of backstory to it. Uh, These guys weren't, Mexican cartel members, these were people that had their idea of the American dream. And even though it was flawed, even though it may have been something out of uh, Gatsby, um, we relate to these guys. They were nonviolent. Everybody wanted to befriend them. Mm. Um, I was serpentitiously dragged into the uh, organization, uh, not kicking and screaming. Uh, You know, it was a nice change, especially when my brother was a uh, star prosecutor back in those days. Uh, But it's relatable. Uh, These are guys that you would see on the street, that you would talk to, And that you can easily befriend, and be somebody that you can get close to.
1: What's sort of compelling about it is, like, it's a Cuban family crime saga. uh, In in that they, you know, the Cuban community in Miami is there. They are the majority. You know, in uh, you know, in, in Miami, and so they had uh, already. Obviously, by that point, they had businesses, they had political clout, uh, and they had their own communities, and they were exile communities, which of course meant that they were going to return to Cuba once Castro had been overthrown and 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 liberty was was brought to the island. So, as it was told to me, you never rent, you never wash a rental car. Yeah, they, they were. No, they weren't going to stick around. And yeah, nobody. And what's interesting is, by the time I I, I had sort of. Uh, first-generation Miamians or third-generation Cubans that we went to high school with, their grandparents never knew English because they were the, 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 real, the true believers, the dreamers that thought that they would, would not have to assimilate because they were always going to go back uh, to Cuba. So there's a real, uh, there was a real sense of community, I think, in the story of Willie Falcone and Sal Gluta. They were known as Los Muchachos. They were known as the boys. Everybody knew them uh, as world-famous, uh, world-champion offshore powerboat racers, but everybody in Miami also knew them to be Uh, drug runners, and and some of the most successful drug runners, but that was kind of okay. It was socially acceptable uh, at, at the time. And I think that's also something to remember about the culture in Miami and the culture of an immigrant community who believed that that even that industry was part and parcel of the American dream by, and, by and any it, means
0: necessary. And it's fascinating. Alfred was doing some digging in one of the society magazines in, in Coral Gables Selecta magazine, and he found <laughs> uh, mid to late 80s stills of Willie Falcone, the biggest kingpin, rubbing shoulders with Jeb Bush and his wife at one of the the, the clubs that, that came after the mutiny, you know, in Coconut Grove. I mean, these guys were way out into the open and what's amazing to me is it culminated in this manhunt and suddenly the noose tightened and everybody was after him, but was no one after Willie and Sal for much of the 1980s?
3: <laughs> well, I mean, there were the charges pending in California, uh, but people in Miami in terms of law enforcement saw them and if they didn't benefit directly from them. Uh, they watch the organization for other people. to get arrested. Uh, the reason I think I was never touched uh, was because I had a low profile. I wasn't thumbing my nose in anybody. Uh, I could hang out with William and Sal. I could hang out with other people of that generation. But I wasn't a threat. And as we
1: established, your brother was an assistant state attorney for crying out loud in Dade County.
3: Well, that's the whole story. <laughs> uh, you could see that in my memoir, hopefully. There's an agent somewhere in the room. But, uh, you know. Well, William and Sal were first arrested
1: in 1979 in, right. in Miami-Dade County. And they were fugitives for essentially, you know, 20 years almost uh, after that. Or, you know,
0: and, and as I said in the book, what's amazing to me is their original pursuer the Ahab in this was State Attorney Janet Reno, and their ultimate pursuer at the turn of the century was Attorney General Janet Reno and the Justice Department. And now that Willie got out of jail in the summer, in June, having served 2017 his, of this year, having served his time, Justice Department wants to deport him to Cuba, which many in the exile community say to me is a fate worse than death for him. Uh, it's tantamount to a death sentence. If you know this is a person who raised money for anti-Castro causes.
2: I just want to go back to something that you said before about how are these guys operating in Miami. And a a very high-profile criminal defense attorney, uh, a buddy of ours in Miami, told us that um, if you get accused of a crime, the place where you want to go to trial is Miami. You want to go to trial in the Southern District of Florida federally because jurors in the Southern District of Florida are much more permissive in terms of criminal behavior than practically any other district in the country. And that's the result of living in a border town, a place where people come and go and, you know, come, you know move in, move out. And some say, some don't. But that essentially is kind of what gave rise or the, or the ability for these guys to operate so out in the open was that there was a real lack. And there still is a real lack of respect for law and order in South Florida. And, and, and
1: the ability to uh, reach out to pay off and corrupt Not one, not two, but three different jurors independent of each other during their sensational uh, federal trial. And it goes back to the the old saying that I'm fond of, which is that Los Angeles is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be
0: somebody else. So it's always always been a sunny place for shady people. A sunny place for shady people. In the few minutes we have left, let's talk about our hometown in the here and now. I do not recognize that skyline. I thought it was going to be down for the count for a decade. Um, uh, in the subprime crisis. I mean, you go out on a boat at night and you look at that skyline in 2008, 2009, it looked like it was cored out or a neutron yeah. bomb went off. And it came back with a vengeance. Venezuelan flight money, Brazilian flight money. I mean, I was down there after the money hurricane. Laundering. Money laundering. I mean, this is the hot money and money laundering capital of America. And after Hurricane Irma, I was asking all these people in these newfangled condominiums, like, aren't you worried about climate change and sea level rise and everything? Nope, it's... Uh, we're not even there. The first, it's not going to hit the first three, four floors. The building buys flood insurance. They'll call us in Buenos Aires if they're, anything they're, happens. They're now building the
1: lobby on like the twentieth floor with a marina up there too, <laughs> just waiting. Just, just like the architectonic building. What the
0: hell is that? Is that a marina up there? And it's, it's 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 crazy. I mean, back in my day, part of town was called Sunny Isles. Now it's Little Moscow. You know, mm-hmm. parts of Miami are now called the Upper East Side, Midtown. Uh, for the first time in my life, I felt like a real, real outsider there. When I was there last week,
2: well, after the great I mean, living through the great recession in Miami was a wild experience because I don't think it was any anywhere in the country was in sharper relief than just the desolation of Miami. There was nobody on the streets in September, October, November of 2008. It was a real ghost town, and you're right. I mean, everybody thought we you were to absorb all this inventory of brand new condos can be 10, 15 years, um, and we At were ground zero. I mean, you could go. You know, to the Washington Mutual drive-through, and your dog could get a
1: mortgage. You know, uh, prior to that, I remember interviewing somebody well prior to the Big Short, uh, who was in the mortgage business down there, and he said, "Man, we were, we were down here setting the fires, and Wall Street was trying to read our smoke signals. Like, cause it, and and the, uh, the FDIC had to open a, a branch." in florida just to deal with the bank closures and it was really it was
2: really ground zero down there it was uh, and i remember we were working on a documentary called the ponzi state uh at the time and we were hearing from realtors that the way that people were saving their condos from foreclosure just to be able to afford the maintenance was that they were renting out these brand new gorgeous high-end never lived in condos, beautiful views for porn shoots the porn industry in Miami became a huge interest yeah. and and and, and mm. subsidized and really kept a lot of people afloat and seems. grow houses. Right. were also indoor and, hydroponic and of course we were ground price. zero for the pill mill epidemic in South Florida and the opioid crisis, which given full circle to this. After
0: all, it is the it is the pill mill and healthcare fraud capital
1: of well. It has uh, to be. We ha- you know Florida is just a it's a hustle economy. We we subsist. From hustle to hustle, we have no indigenous industry, as Carl Hyacin says. All we produce is oranges and handguns, um, in the state, uh, and we just sell sunshine. You know, it's it's a total. It, so it's a total hustle. So when you have uh, something like Medicare fraud, which is I think a significant percentage of our of our economy uh, in, in the state, you kind of have to let it. Let it go for a while, because how how the hell else are we making money? The premise of Ponzi state was interesting. Is not only is it, uh, you know, are we the headquarters or the capital for all major Ponzi schemers, beginning with Charles Ponzi himself in the 1920s, coming all the way to Bernie Madoff, you know, pillaging in in, in Palm Beach. Uh, but you had uh, you have an economy where since the mid 1950s, with the advent of central AC and DDT to kill the skeeters, which made South Florida the mosquitoes l- livable for, you know, year yeah. round. Um, We had, on average, 1,000 new arrivals to the state every single day. Every single day, 1,000 new arrivals. Now, what did they do once they got there? Some of them on fixed income, Social Security retirees. But other people would go into real estate, construction, hospitality, hotels, restaurants. All businesses designed to attract tomorrow's 1,000 new arrivals. And then 2007, the year before the Great Recession, we have the first net population decrease in the state of Florida. And the economy collapses. And Gary Mormino, this uh, e- e- economist at the University of uh, South Florida in Tampa, said that's the Ponzi scheme. The state of Florida economy is a Ponzi scheme. It relies solely on influx of new investment, new money, new revenue. Otherwise, it can't sustain itself.
0: Is South Florida, you talk about sustainability and, and close us out here, ideally on a hopeful note, is it going to be able to... Beat back, the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, god. I mean, there are days now during King Tide, where you can go inland two, three miles. People bring plastic bags into their cars to put on their sneakers, because the sewers, the drainage systems, are gurgling up. I think it's hopeful if you live in Hialeah, because
1: that's going to become waterfront property at some point, (laughs) uh, inland.
2: Uh, you know, if we have to rely on the political leadership in South Florida or at the state level to steer us out of this crisis, we are going to uh, all have to get uh, fins and snorkels.
1: Yeah, and this is what's, you know, Florida, the Florida of today is the America of tomorrow. We've already experienced this CEO form of government with uh, with Rick Scott, this this privatized, subsidized, brutalized form of of government that could completely that, that is decimating the state and, and, and soon decimating you know Washington D.C. We've exported that vi- via Florida man president um, and uh, and I think what you're you're, uh, you're seeing a total lack of sustainability because it's not only sea level rise it's clean water it's the you know it's it's uh, clean air. It's uh, infrastructure, which is in shambles uh, in, in Miami. Uh, we don't even have a, a, a hospital, an emergency room for you And to, yet everybody's buying condos. But, but come pre- on. The sun
2: shines 300 days a year. Come on come down.
0: On down. 80% <laughs> cash. Bring your money. We'll <laughs> grab you, you
1: by the ankles and shake you until, it's, until your pockets are empty. You
0: heard it here first. Raconteur bullish on Ozark's real estate. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Corbin, Alfred Spellman Raconteur, Owen Bann from Hotel Scarface, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks today. for it's having It's a it. privilege thank you, Robin. and an honor. Full disclosure: Our engineer back up in Virginia is John Valentine. We are on NPR One, on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. You could check us out on the tweeters at FullDRadio on Facebook.com/FullDRadio. No plans yet to come to Thruster or Grinder, but um, that will be potentially in the works. Uh, special thanks to our host at WNYC, especially Joanne Klimkiewicz. Utsuki Utsuka, Jennifer Sendro, Erica Romero, Ricardo Fernandez, Chase Culpin. I cannot thank you enough. Yeah. Full disclosure, Brooklyn-bound, Bronx-bound, express train local trucks down, clear the closing doors, please. Ding dong. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.